going to be going through Perk Yavos. I'm going to try, I can't guarantee that we'll be successful, but we'll try and do a Mishnah each class. So that means that we'll try and give an overview of the Mishnah as opposed to get bogged down on specific details, but sometimes the, the Mishnah is too lengthy to do in one class. So we'll see as time goes on. But Perky Avos, I find to be one of the most fascinating sections in Jewish literature, certainly in Torah Shabal Pen, the Oral Torah, because <clears throat> Perky Avos, literally translated as chapters of the fathers, but we'll just call it Perky Avos, is <clears throat> an amazing compilation of some of the most profound, insightful, and just simple but tremendously meaningful statements of our rabbis, of Chazal. And what's interesting to note is Perkyavos in its placement in Torah Shabbat Peh, it's Mishnayis, and therefore so it's set up in the section of Mishnah, and where it is placed in the order of Mishnayis is right after Sanhedrin. Meaning it's placed right after all the laws of the court system. And what you find interesting as you go through and read Perkyavos, you won't find a single law in the five chapters. There's a sixth chapter that, that was added. It's not Mishnah, but in the six chapters of Mishnayas of, of Perkyavos, you don't find a single law. It's filled with psychology, philosophy, sociology, human insight, personal growth, character traits. It's just a, a plethora of combinations of everything other than Jewish law. And that I find fascinating because of two reasons. Number one, as I mentioned, the placement of where Perkyavos is. It's placed right in the section dealing with laws and judges. And then you take a look at the very first statement of Perkyavos. The entire section of Perkyavos begins with the three words, Moshe Kibel Torah. Moshe acquired Torah and the fourth word, Messinai, from Sinai. Perkyavos opens up by saying what we are about to speak about is Torah. And Perkyavos is telling us right off the bat don't ever limit, don't ever minimize Torah with the tunnel focus of law. That's not what Torah is. There's a statement, Yesh Chachma Begoyim Tamin, Torah Begoyim Al Tamin, that if someone says that there's wisdom out there amongst the non-Jewish world, you're allowed to believe them. There's wisdom out there in the world. They have insights as to how to live life. That's wisdom. Wisdom is just knowing how to live life. But Torah doesn't exist outside the world other than Torah itself. Now clearly, that's telling you right away that Torah is something much more profound than just wisdom. And Torah is certainly something much more encompassing than just law. Torah is the embodiment of Hashem's Ratzon, of Hashem's wisdom for the world. Torah is the blueprint of creation. 
It says that God, when he created the world, looked into the Torah and then created the world. Now, that cannot mean the Torah that we have. Clearly, that cannot be what it means. The Torah we have is the five books of Moses. It didn't happen yet. <laughs> that would be really problematic that the Torah existed. This takes away all concepts of Moses making a mistake with the rock. He didn't make a mistake. That's what was going to happen before the world was even created. The Jewish people build the golden calf. That wasn't a mistake. That happened before the world was created. No, what it means is that what the Torah represents was there before the very creation of the world. And Perkyavos is coming to elaborate on that idea that Torah is all-encompassing. Yes, it's law. Yes, it's mitzvahs. It's also psychology. It's also human insight. It's also just a deep understanding of Hashem Himself. That is what Torah is. And that's what Perkyavos is speaking about. Moshe kibel Torah Messinai. Moshe acquired Torah from Sinai. Umasara the Yoshua. And he handed it over to Yoshua, the Yoshua, the Zikanim. And Yoshua handed it over to the Zikanim, the Zikanim, the Nevi'im. And the Zikanim transmitted it to the prophets. Unevi'im, Misaruha, la Ansheikh Nesasagadola. And the prophets, they transmitted it to the men of the great assembly. We could easily spend an entire class just on that statement right there. But I, time doesn't permit. I want to get into the next section, and I don't want to dwell too much, but just to point out that the Mishnah in Perkyavis is again telling us how Torah was given and how it is transmitted, that we're talking about a Kabbalah. I know in, in this household I have to be very careful when I speak about Kabbalah. <laughs> But nonetheless, <clears throat> the word Kabbalah does not mean mysticism. The word Kabbalah does not mean metaphysical ideas. The word Kabbalah is right there. Moshe Kibel Torah Messina. Moshe received Torah from Sinai. That Kabbalah means to receive. When we speak about Kabbalah, this is the most Kabbalistic I will speak, but when we speak about Kabbalah, what we are, the reason people call it spiritual understandings of Torah, the people that, that speak about it as from a metaphysical idea, is because Kabbalah is understanding how Hashem's creation takes place. Hashem is something that has no physical attributes whatsoever. The question, where is God, is not a question. The question is, how does something non-physical turn into something physical. How is it that God said, I'm going to create a world? Well, that is a non-physical idea that Hashem just created. That idea then turned into wood. How did that happen? How does that energy, we'll call it, how does that energy go from something totally untangible to something you can hold in your hand? How does this world receive that? That is the same language that is being spoken about here. That the only way we know anything is incredibly presumptuous of me or anyone else to stand in front of another human being and say, I know what life is about. 
incredibly presumptuous. How do you know what life's about? How do you know anything until you've finished it? <laughs> You're halfway through a book. You know what the book's about? Yeah. And but you, you only ever have your perspective. And you only have your perspective. And my perspective is not your perspective. I didn't live your life. So how can anyone ever stand and say they know anything about life? You can say they know about their life. I'll never forget when I got engaged. The practice was in yeshiva that after you got engaged, you went around to Rebbeim and you got what was known as a chassan shmuz. I'll give you a little shmuz about marriage. And I'll never forget that one particular rov who was considered probably in the yeshiva next to the Rosh Yeshiva to be the wisest rabbi in the yeshiva. And I went to him and he said, are you going to a lot of rabbis to get a chassan shmuz? I said to him, actually, no, I'm not. I, I said, I went to the Rosh Yeshiva and, and you. <laughs> and he said, good. He says, I don't recommend it. I said, but I, uh, why? I was just curious why. He said, because inevitably what happens is people run around, they go to this rabbi, this rabbi, this rabbi, this rabbi, to get a chassan shmuz, and all they really hear about is that rabbi's marriage. Mm-hmm. They're not hearing about marriage. <laughs> And I, and I was so, I was like, wow. But now, later I thought, I said, well, wait, isn't that a little presumptuous? He's telling me that that's not what he's doing. Well, how is he doing anything different? Mm-hmm. No, because he wasn't talking about his marriage. Moshe Kibel Torah Messinai. When we stand and say that we know anything, it is only because we know it for one reason and one reason only. And that's because Moshe Kibel Torah Messinai. Moshe got Torah from Mount Sinai. When we say that we know something, it's only because we know it because God told us. That's it. It's not because I'm so wise. It's not because that I've got this breadth of understanding that surpasses anyone else's. No. It's because all I'm doing is sharing with you something that I was taught that goes back generation to generation, all the way back to Moses. And Moshe got it from Mount Sinai. And anything that we say is Torah, is we're saying it is because it comes from the Almighty Himself. It gets to the Anshei Knesset HaGadola. The Mishnah in Perkyad... Yeah, I have a question. <clears throat> Please. Don't they say that Shivim Kanim Torah, or that when we receive the Torah, every person receives it in their own way? Yes. So it could be that... Um, there are different lenses absolutely. through which we could see Torah absolutely so I have a saying this is my own you can think it's insightful or not I, I like to think it's you know one of those quips that's wow Torah is black and white for a very gray world Torah is black and white God says so period however this world that we live in is very gray and therefore Everyone is going to have to see Torah through their lens, through their prism. And I'm going to have to understand Torah the way I understand Torah. Now, I have to be able to say that I'm deciphering Torah within the parameters that Torah laid out. I can't, anything's not Torah. Mm-hmm. can't just say, well, this is my interpretation. That word interpretation is one of the, uh, one of the, the most disastrous words that's, that was ever applied to Torah. Because once you say, it's, well, it's all up to interpretation. Well, now you've got, forget the spectrum of Judaism that you have within Torah Judaism. You've just validated anything Mm -hmm. by using that word. So there are parameters. 
that are called Torah. Within those parameters, every individual is going to have to now apply Torah to their world. So yeah, of course there's going to be the way I see Torah. And there are Shivim Panim Torah. There are 70 understandings of Torah. And they're all true, as long as they're within the realm of Torah. There's a... Uh, I forget it. A, 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 you know, one of these... Uh, <clears throat> Oriental proverbs or stories, and might not be Oriental, but it's it's out there somewhere where three blind men are walking in the forest, and they come across something, and they start feeling it, and they all start to describe what they feel, and one of them says, "It, I, I, it seems like I'm, we've come across a wall," and the other one says, "No, it's a tree," and the other one says, "No, it just feels like a vine that we can just lift and walk under." And had they been able to see, they would have realized that they were standing next to an elephant. (laughs) So everyone's going to have their perspective of what they see, but we have to make sure that our perspective is not blinded by our own perspective. It wasn't a wall, it wasn't a tree, and it wasn't a vine. It was an elephant. But they were all right, I think, which is also important. Well, they were all right, so that's the thing. They weren't right. No, they weren't right. It wasn't a wall. wall. But when you... Put all the perspectives together, that's when you get the real answer. In other words, if I may, what they were standing in front of was a theoretical wall. Quote, unquote, it was a wall. It was something that was impeding their ability to walk past it. That's a wall. But it was not literally a wall. So it was a tree. It was something which, yeah, we could walk around it. But it's certainly, it's in our path. So, but it's not a tree, it's an elephant. So we have to be very careful when looking at Torah through our prism, that we aren't blinded by our prism. That we think that it's limited to, well, this is the way it is. Why is it that way? Because that's the way I see it. And we have to make sure that we're within the, the parameters that Torah itself laid out for us to understand it. What if when you're learning Torah, that you, you see a lot of contradictory things? Very challenging. Yeah. And it's in the, in, I was in the asked, chat. I was asked this week... I don't want to give too many details when I'm on tape. I always say I have no idea whoever listens. I don't mind pausing it, but I have no, I doubt that anyone ever listens to this. And I, I always say that, but I have to be careful because one time someone came up to me one time and said, Rabbi, I was listening to a tape of yours. But I was asked this week, someone called me to ask me to be a quote-unquote expert witness in a, in, a, in a trial. They needed a rabbi. They needed a rabbi to be an expert witness. And I was immediately fascinated. I love this stuff. I, I, I one time was on jury duty and I didn't, I could have easily said things to get myself off of jury duty and I didn't because I was fascinated by it. Granted, in hindsight, I wish I had, but just because I, it was very, very disappointing to see who is really handling our legal system. The average person on the street. Oh, this person deserved to be put into jail and these people put him into jail, but for all the wrong reasons. Um, but I was asked to be an expert witness and they needed an expert witness. I declined. And the reason I declined is because one of the two sides is a family that I'm very close with. And this lawyer represented the other side. And I just felt that it was inappropriate for me to be involved. Um, but they needed an expert witness specifically on based in how based in works. And the reason they need an expert witness on how based in works is because the two parties 
excuse me, the two parties had agreed to allow Baston to be the arbitration. Mm-hmm. They, they had signed an agreement that if anything goes wrong between the two parties, and I don't want to give details, that if anything goes wrong with the two parties, they will go to Baston, not civil court. Mm-hmm. And now one of the two parties is claiming, no, civil court needs to decide this. And but they, did they go to Betin already? Again, I don't want to give too oh, many I'm details. Sorry. So, but and so, there was never any legal contract that the two of them had. Only the agreement that they would go to Baston if there was a disagreement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the lawyer wanted someone to come in and say, in Jewish law, what is the power of Baston, and how binding is that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and I said to this lawyer, I said, I don't know if I'd be the best character witness for you because I'm sorry to say I have seen Baston do questionable things. Mm-hmm. And I might accidentally say that and that would be disastrous for your case. Mm-hmm. Um, and, she said, and she said, I agree. Look, when we see contradictions in Torah, when we see contradictions in the way Torah is being applied, when we see contradictions in life, it is incredibly challenging to adhere to our values. There are two things that I try not to speak about often, and that is marriage and parenting, just because I feel that I am not equipped to speak about either <laughs> um, because of my uh, inept at both of them. But uh, one of the most destructive things to a child's upbringing is when a child sees contradictions. It destroys them. It destroys their ability to look at their parents respectfully. It destroys their ability to look at their school respectfully. Mm-hmm. It destroys their ability to look at life without a cynical approach. Mm-hmm. When we see that in Torah, it is incredibly challenging. What we have to remember is Torah is black and white in a gray world. Torah is Hashem's word, period. That is truth. That is perfect. That is without flaw. However, it's been handed over to an incredibly flawed entity, i.e. humans. I took my family to the East Coast just a few months ago, and uh, my mother insisted we come visit in New Jersey, and she's getting older, and she wanted to make sure that she saw the kids, and so she said, I will pay for you to come to New Jersey. You need to come see me. And I'm from New Jersey, so I like New Jersey. But, you know, New Jersey, for someone who hasn't come from New Jersey, is not high on the vacation list. <laughs> so my, my family was not too thrilled. So, so my mom says, well, I'll pay. And you can do some fun things. So we went and we went to an orchard, to a garden. New Jersey is known as the Garden State. So we went to this farm and we got to pick corn and peaches and tomatoes it was a lot of fun the kids had a great time i enjoyed myself thoroughly i learned something i never knew before you can eat corn on the cob raw yeah it's delicious how did you know that how did you know that i i I was in shock to learn that and guess what it's delicious (laughs) it's delicious i always thought that it would be biting into like a a raw potato Mm -hmm. right into a rock carrots used to only be unbelievable right so why do i bring this up because you know when, when when the kids went in there they would get to they'd go to one stalk of corn 
And if they didn't see right away a beautiful stalk, you know, beautiful ear ready to be plucked, what would they do? Run to the next stalk. When we got to the peach trees, thankfully, they said, look, it's late in the season. You have four trees to pick from. That's it. There were four trees. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a peach tree in its full blossom. Plenty of peaches on one tree. But my kids would run up. If they didn't see a peach right away that looked beautiful, they'd run to the next tree. Now, there was only four trees, so eventually (laughs) they had to find something. But that's what we do in life when we're children. If we don't see it perfect right away, well, this tree's no good. Do you remember... The tree's good. You're going to find a lot of bad peaches on that tree. Mm-hmm. There's lots of contradictions. We have to be careful. Don't throw out the Torah because of the contradictions that we see. Mm-hmm. Seek out wh- what are these contradictions? Why are there contradictions? Where is it from? And that'll help you. It's challenging. I'm not mm-hmm. going to lie to you. I'm not going to paint it over. One of the things I like to say about my teaching is there's no fluff. I will tell you, you know, we have a sign in our, in our kitchen that says, Good morning, let the stress begin. That's life. That's life. And if you're one of the fortunate ones that lives a pampered life where that doesn't exist, great. I hope that you didn't get it all in this world. (laughs) I hope. I hope that that, that Hashem left you something for the next world because not everyone is meritorious to have it in both worlds. Don't, Don't become cynical. That's all I can say. All right. So the Torah got down to the men of the Great Assembly. Now, if you don't know who the men of the Great Assembly are, you have to understand, and this is going to be crucial to understand this Mishnah, the men of the Great Assembly, for all intents and purposes, was the Jewish Supreme Court. However, we're not just talking about any Jewish Supreme Court because we had a Sanhedrin. And this is not the Sanhedrin. This is the precursor. The men of the Great Assembly was a very specific body that encompassed the Sanhedrin. It was a very specific body. There was a period of time where those individuals were known as the men of the Great Assembly. And the reason they were called that is because of what they accomplished. They accomplished so much, almost the entirety of what we understand today as formalized Judaism came from them. The prayer service, as the men of the Great Assembly, the way we observe holidays, Everything about our life cycle was put into a package. Now, obviously, they didn't create everything. There were laws that existed before them that people were doing. But it was much less formalized. It was people lived life, as you said, through their prism. The men in the Great Assembly put together the way we understand Judaism today. Specifically, the men of the Great Assembly were right before the Jews went into Gullus, into exile. Now, the Mishnah here says, Heim Amru Shlosha Dvarim. This body said three things. Before we look at the three things they said in detail, let's just read them. Havi Masunim Badin, which means that you should be deliberate in judgment. Vahamidu Tamidim Harbei, you should stand up many students, v'asu siyag Torah, and you should make a fence for the Torah. Those are the three things they said. Before we look at those three things specifically, you have to think about the absurdity of what this Mishnah just said. The men of the Great Assembly said three things. 
Who are they speaking to? Are they speaking to the rabbis or are they speaking to the, to the little men? It's not so simple. For our discussion, we're going to say that Perkyavis is speaking to everyone. However, there are approaches that say, no, Perkyavis is speaking to the judges because that's where it is. But clearly, clearly, Perkyavis has become understood by Jews that in our tradition, in, our, in Judaism, we've come to understand that Perkyavis is universal. It's speaking to all of us. Just making a for the Torah. Uh, we're going to speak about that's that. That's, that's, let's hold that thought if that's true. Let's okay. hold that. The men of the Great Assembly said three things. Let's just think about the absurdity of that statement. <laughs> only three. Two Jews, how many opinions? Four. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> Forget, right? Liz is right. It's not two Jews, three opinions. No, there's four. There's his opinion, there's his opinion, then there's the one that they both agree on, and then there's one that neither agree on. So it's it's... Could you imagine if you go to Washington, D.C., you go to the Smithsonian Institute, or you go to the Library of Congress, and you walk in with your little, um, you know, your little uh, USB card, which they probably don't even have anymore. I don't know if people even have those anymore. Now it's just your phone. And you say, you walk in with your little USB key card, and you say, could you do me a favor and download onto this everything that the Supreme Court of the United States justices ever said? <laughs> <laughs> They'd say, I'm sorry, that's not going to fit on that. Yeah. Okay, fine. Here's a CD-ROM. It's not going to fit on that. <laughs> you need a database. <laughs> For everything that the Supreme Court of the United States, the justice has ever said? Now imagine they were all Jews. Times 10. I've read... I went to law school for a short time. <laughs> the um, Piskei Dean, however you call it, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Paper, would be dozens if not hundreds of pages long. They would go into detail about every little detail. The, the men of the Great Assembly, one of the greatest bodies of Jewish legal minds ever put together. And they said three things. Absurd. Yeah. But isn't that the format Obviously, of Obviously, that is the per- format of Perkyavos. It's like you can only get so much. You can't have everything. No. You should have said, if that was the case, then you should have said, among the things that the men of the Great Assembly said are the following three. Right. It doesn't say that. It says, they said three things. Mm-hmm. But then they say the same for everybody Every else. Single like, they say everybody so Every single one. Every single one. And it's like, you right. know that that's not the only thing. So why are they saying it then? It's the most important uh, thing. This is their magnum opus. Right. This is their reason to entree. This is, if you had to sum up everything we say... Everything we stand for, everything that what we say, the embodiment of it all, these three things. Mm-hmm. These three things. If you want to understand what it is that we're trying to accomplish as the men of the Great Assembly, here they are. These three things. Everything we say has to be fit into the umbrella of these three things. This is crucial for you to understand. These three things. That's what the men of the Great Assembly said. Now that puts it in a whole new light. We better make sure we understand what these three things are. So what's the first one? Be deliberate in judgment. Now when learning Perkyavos, and by the way, this is true when learning any piece of Torah. Anytime you learn Torah, the way I was taught by my teacher, Reb Noach Zetzal, Rosh Shiva Vesha Torah, Reb Noach Weinberg, he said that whenever you learn Torah, you want to do the following. The first thing you want to do is, before you understand what it is they're trying to say, first understand what it is they said. Now, what's the difference? Make sure you define what is it that they said. 
translate every word and make sure you understand because we say that they used their words specifically. They could have said this in a number of different ways. They said it this way. Do I understand what's being said? Now, what did they mean? So the very first thing we're going to do is we're always going to stop and translate everything literally. Have masuni badin, the very first statement. Wait, oh, I'm there are three statements. I have a quick yeah. Question: What did they do? Was there like a Pirkei project where there was like a guy who likes to eat <laughs> one? He's like, okay, what's your submission for Pirkei Avot? How did they? How did they come to this? So that that that's, that is a great question. <laughs> did they have a committee? Okay, look, we want to say what are the three things we said. Let's take a vote. <laughs> That is great. <laughs> that is a lengthier discussion that talks about not just Perkyavos, but Mishnayas itself. Yes. How did the Mishnah ever come to be? Because we say this idea, by the way, the idea that every word of a Mishnah is very specific and, by the way, deliberate. Very important. I'm going to use that word. That every word of the Mishnah is deliberate. I could have said it that way. No, I'm saying it this way. I could have said it once. Why did I say it twice? And that's how Talmud is learned. Talmud is learned by stopping and looking at a Mishnah and saying, one second, you said it once. You could, why'd you say it twice? Once you said it, you already said it. Not only that, you seem to contradict yourself in the Mishnah. You said this, but then you said that. Well, you could have used this word. Why'd you use that word? Mm-hmm. That's how Talmud works. That's how Torah works. That's how Torah works. Mm-hmm. Now, Torah... We could say that's because God wrote it. God. Right. <laughs> the Talmud is the same thing. So that means there must have been a very specific process how the Mishnah was written. Yeah. Now, that's a lengthier discussion. That would take more yeah. than, than, than the time I have remaining. But if you'd like, we can do it one time. Um, suffice it to say for right now, there was a process. And that process was very detailed in terms of it was primarily left up to one individual. His name was Rebbe. We call him Rebbe. His full name was Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi. Rebbe Judah the Prince in English, but Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi, he was the Nasi. He was the head of the Jewish people at his time. And he is the one who compiled all the Mishnayis. And when he did it, he did it in a very specific, deliberate way. So it was not that the men of the Great Assembly sat around and said, okay, we need to vote. What are the three things that we hold to be paramount and tantamount to everything we stand for? Rather, Rebbe wrote this. But Rebbe understood that this is what the Anshe Knesset would stand for. Okay. So they said, number one of the three things, be deliberate in judgment. Well, let's start with the first word, Deliberate. I used it multiple times now. What's the definition of deliberate? Certain. Being, Being certain. Deliberate sounds both, both that you deliberate. Yeah. Oh, that is the definition of deliberate. When you have children growing up, ladies, trust me, you, will, you, you did that deliberately. Now, you might not say it like that, but that's what it means. You did. It was an accident. No, it wasn't. It was deliberate. Deliberate means on purpose. So the first thing that the men of the Great Assembly said was be deliberate on purpose. Number two, in judgment. 
Well, what's judgment? If you had to sum up judgment, what is a judgment? If you're a lawyer, you're sitting around judges all the time and judges sit and make judgments. What is judgment? Making decisions. That's it. That's what judgment is. A judge makes a decision. It's either this way or that way. Guilty, not guilty. Liable, not liable. A judgment is a decision. Period. The very first thing that the men of the Great Assembly said is be deliberate in judgment. When you make decisions, make them deliberately. How often do we make decisions in our life? Constantly, every other second. Every second. Now, here's the real question. How many of them are deliberate? Mm, Most of them are. Rare. And the ones that are deliberate are so hard to make. Not only are they hard to make, but how often do we not make them? Mm. How often do you say the following to someone? Let me think about that. Mm. And you know what you really mean? And when I say you, I mean me as well. You know what we really mean? Let me agonize (laughs) over the next period of time that I have to make this decision without ever making it. Oh, God, I got to think about this. Oh, God. Oh, God. Okay, all right. You know, I need to think about this. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, God. Oh, God. I got to think about this. Oh, my God. Did you make a decision yet? No. No. I'm I'm thinking about it. (laughs) Okay, look. I need to know by tomorrow. Okay? Tomorrow I need to know. Okay, fine. I'm going to think about it tonight. Oh, God. I can't go to bed. I got to think about this. Oh, my God. Oh, God. Oh, oh, God. And then the next morning the phone rings. Hello? Oh, Crud. <laughs> okay, I need a decision. Ah, that one. <laughs> so is this telling us not to agonize over them, just to go by instinct? No. Or to just but before that, but first of all, that wasn't deliberate. That's also not that was good default. Do it. Yeah. That was default. Okay. So often we make decisions by default, mm-hmm. not deliberately. Mm-hmm. The very first thing, the very first thing the men of the Great Assembly say is, when you make choices in life which is constantly make sure that you're making them because you choose it choose yes. be alive choose it's don't putting go. you in power it's putting, it's putting yeah. you in power it's giving you responsibility it's saying choose don't make decisions by default don't make decisions by habit don't let other people make decisions don't forfeit your decision yeah, yeah. it's worse than default it's forfeit allow time to decide for you. When you pick up the phone and the person says, did you choose? And you go, that one. That was, you didn't choose that. That was forfeit. That's worse than default. You didn't show up for the game. <laughs> the other team won. Why? Not because you lost. You forfeit. Mm-hmm. Now, what most people think, as Liz is pointing out, are you telling me not to agonize? No. Are you telling me not to spend time thinking? No, on the contrary. But don't ever misunderstand deliberate having anything to do with time. Deliberate has nothing to do with time. And I will give you two examples that show, and they are mundane. They have nothing to do with life in terms of what you're agonizing over. But if you are playing chess and you are playing against a champion, well, how long is that move going to take you? A long time. A long time. Until the timer, and, and by the way, you know, you, 
hours you could be sitting there and you know the little thing there there's no time it's just you hit it and then the next person and it's like now his turn he's like okay oh wait if i go that way no i gotta think through every possible move and scenario i'm not a computer i need time i'm gonna deliberate god forbid you're on the second floor of a house that's on fire the fire hasn't reached the second floor yet but that fire is raging so fiercely on the first floor that if you put your foot in the wrong spot, what's going to happen? Fall, <clears throat> cave, in. cave in. However, if you wait too long, what's going to happen? The whole building is going to go down. You've got to get from this side of the room to that side. Soon. <laughs> or that's it. No different than a fireman going into a building. Sometimes they have to go in from the roof yeah. and they got to move. But you know what they do? They make sure that every step they take is deliberate. Mm-hmm. Now they have a stick that they, you know, they got a stick. You don't have a stick. So what do you do? You better take your foot and just give a, but you better be deliberate and fast. Deliberate is not time. Deliberate means on purpose. Sometimes life will allot you a week to think about it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes life will be right now but make sure both of those scenarios are deliberate on purpose you choose don't allow anyone else to choose that's number one number two stand up many students well just like before what does it mean to stand up it's a very weird phrase why not teach many students they translate this develop. Yeah, it's that's like, nice. It's the difference between giving a man a fish every day and teaching him how to fish. It's kind Ooh. of like allowing him to stand on his own two feet. Okay, well, you used the word again. You were doing great until you used the word again. What is it? What, Allow him to function on his own two feet. Teach him how to be, be his own man. Sum that up in one word. There you go. Independence. Well, <clears throat> there are many different kinds of independence. When you were younger, your parents said to you, and hopefully they're not still saying to you, <laughs> but when are you going to learn to stand on your own two feet? What were they saying? When are you going to learn to be independent? Mm-hmm. Now, there are many different forms of independence. Sometimes your parents were talking about financial independence. Mom, can I get 500 bucks? When are you going to learn to stand on your own two feet? <laughs> In other words be independent when are you going to learn to be financially independent and stop relying on me to pay all your bills financial independence tell me what is financial independence really when are you going to be able to afford to support yourself without having to rely on others that's all okay there's another kind of independence one that's i would say much more crucial to a child and when you learn to stand on your own two feet and that's emotional independence psychological independence you know what emotional independence is it's the same thing when are you going to learn to rely on yourself emotionally without having to rely on other people like what would be an example of that loving yourself and stop worrying about what everyone else thinks about you oh, okay and stop worrying, am I a good, you know, do, 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 do they like me? What do they say about me? Self-esteem. Self-esteem. Okay. That's emotional independence. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think the rabbis were talking about either of those? When they said stand up, 
many students? Well, they were talking about students. What's a student? A student is someone that you teach. That's it. So what kind of independence do you think they're talking about? That they can learn on their own. Okay. It could be children for parents. It could be students and rabbis. It could be anything, but what kind of independence are they talking about? Oh. Well, I think it's... I would say inner trust. Inner, like, to trust yourself that you can... Yeah, that that you can can what? Make good decisions regarding your life. Oh. They're talking about a very specific independence. Yes, learn on your own, but that's not independence intellectual independence. Mm -hmm. You know what intellectual independence is? Being able to know if I'm right without having to rely on someone else. That's intellectual independence. And the men of the Great Assembly are telling teachers here specifically, and then we'll speak about how it relates to anything that we're talking about. When you teach your students... Make sure you teach them in a way that they have the ability to make decisions. But in the, in the Talmud, um, they're constantly, when they're making a point, quoting... Um, There's nothing wrong with quoting. Right, but that doesn't mean um, that they thought of it on their own. In last week's Parsha, Abraham said to Hashem, what good are all your blessings that you promised me, Hashem? I go childless. And all I have to carry on my mission is Eliezer. No, Eliezer Damaski. Eliezer from Damascus. It's the only time in the Torah he's called that. Why? The Gemara says, the rabbi says, and Rashi says right there, why is he called Eliezer Damaski? Shehudoyle umashke Torah shorabo that he just drinks and pours back the teachings of his teacher. Mm-hmm. All he does is repeat what I say. That's what Abraham says to God. What good is Eliezer? All he does is repeat what I say. Well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> That's what all the rabbis in the Talmud do. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, in Perkyavos, we're going to get to the 48 ways. I don't know if we'll ever get there, but it's <laughs> in the sixth chapter. It says in the last of the 48 ways that the greatest attribute of the 48 ways, the last one is to say something over in the name of the one who said it first. Right. So isn't that what Eliezer was doing? No. Because there's a difference between quoting someone and quoting them as your source, but yet you're quoting yourself. This is, I know this to be true. This is me. This mm-hmm. is my Torah. Where did I get it from? I got it from my teacher. Moshe Kibel Torah Misenai. Remember, there's a, there's a process here. So how's that different? How's that being the other is, I'm just saying what he said, but it's not mine. I didn't make it mine. I didn't acquire ownership of it. I can't use that to extrapolate and to apply it to different aspects of my life. It's an isolated piece of information that I got and I can share with you. Right. I can just repeat what I was told. Can you, can you elaborate on that, Rabbi? Oh, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. can you help me understand how I can apply that in my life and then he just repeats feed it to me and regurgitating it I'm able to take that information understand it apply it because I own it it's mine if all you're doing when you're learning Torah is just walking around with a database of information that's not real that's not Torah 
That's information. That's not wisdom. That's just information that you can, you know, quote. Copy paste. <laughs> <clears throat> um, Isn't there a section? Goodwill hunting. Goodwill. If you saw the movie, you'll appreciate it. If not, oh well. Sorry. Goodwill Hunting. I've definitely seen it. Good. So I'm paraphrasing, but there's a great scene there where Matt Damon's character is sitting with Robin Williams on a bench. And Robin Williams says, if I ask you to tell me something about love, you'll probably quote a sonnet or something from Shakespeare. Can you tell me what it feels like? You know nothing about love. Because you didn't live it. It's not yours. It's information you're just repeating. Mm -hmm. That's not real. Now, what he was talking about was experience, but he's also talking about something much deeper. Not just experience. Why is experience so crucial? The Torah talks about the eight Hachayim, then the eight Das in the story of creation. There were the two trees in the garden. There was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowledge was experience. The first time the word is used in terms of knowledge and human existence is where Adam knew Chava. They're talking about sex there. They're talking about intimacy. Because that experience is an understanding of another human being more profound than anything else. Experience is a form of knowledge. So what Goodwill, the movie Goodwill, when Robin Williams was saying, you've never experienced any of this and therefore you don't know it. Knowledge means that it's you. It's a part of you. It's integrated. It's integrated into your being. That's what it means to stand up many students. Make sure your students aren't just getting information, but that they have that information and they have the ability to extrapolate, apply, understand, and integrate that information into their very being so that they don't have to run to you every time they have a question. What do I do? You understand it. Apply it. I'll never forget one time I went to Rav Noach to ask him what something meant in Torah. I was, uh, I'll never forget, I was asking him, uh, I was bothered by something, and he sat back in his chair and he says, well, what do you think it means? I said, Wait, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> he says, well, what do you think? I said, I'm allowed to just say something on my own? <laughs> and he says, yeah. He says, you're not just making it up. You've been in yeshiva. You've got the, like I said earlier, you understand the parameters of what's true, what's not, and what's just out of left field. Oh, maybe, maybe aliens came down. I'm talking absurdities. Within that parameter, you come up with it. Stand on your own two feet. Mm-hmm. Think. Make sure that when you teach, you're teaching them. That's what the men of the Great Assembly, make sure you're teaching them the following. Not just information, but one thing incredibly crucial to life. Make sure they understand how they can know that they're right. That's what it means to stand up. Intellectual independence. That I have the ability to say, this is right. How do I know that? Because I was taught from so-and-so. There's nothing wrong with that. But I know it. Not just, oh, well, he said it. The only way you can do that as a teacher is if you've got that. And the best way to learn something is through teaching. Do you see the men of the Great Assembly aren't only teaching to the, to the rabbis here? 
the Rennes and the Assembly are not saying this is what you should do with your students. They're saying this is what you need to be. You need to be, before you go and teach students, you need to be in a position where you have the ability to say, how do I know I'm right? And you put that back together with the first statement, you see how it goes beautifully, hand in hand. The very first thing that the men of the Great Assembly tell us is what? Be deliberate in judgment. You're going to be making decisions all day long, the rest of your life. Make sure when you make those decisions, you're doing it deliberately. Choose. Live life. Choose life. Live. Don't go through life by rote. Don't go through life by motion. Don't go through life by habit. Choose. That's number one. And number two, make sure you know. How do you choose? How do you know how to make decisions? Make sure you know. How are you making these decisions? How do you know that's the right choice? Don't just make choices. Make sure you've got a platform that you can stand on. And that gives us to number three. Asu siag Torah. Make a fence for the Torah. Well, I said, well, that's only something that the rabbis do. Well, let's think about this. Just like before, let's define what we're talking about. What's a fence? And don't tell me what a fence in Judaism is. A safeguard. A safeguard. That's what a fence is. Okay, what's it, what's it guarding? Just a fence. I don't, don't talk about Judaism and things like that. It's protecting oh. you. It's protecting something in the fence. In the fence, right. How? By keeping, maintaining a certain distance from it so you don't get too close to it. It keeps you from falling. Well, well, well you two are saying yeah, two different it things. It from getting too close to it. Too close to what? To whatever's being protected. Like, let's say you have the prohibition so, against eating so. milk and meat. Well, I said don't bring in Judaism. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. I don't want to Jewish what law. I want to know what a fence is. Well, oh, see, she's saying something different thing. There's something on the other side. There's something on the other side of the fence. That you don't want getting in. Right. Yeah, you there's, need a separation. There's, there's coyotes up in the hills, and I got a cute little puppy. Well, I don't want that coyote jumping over the fence and eating my puppy. So that's why you go up into the hills over there, and, and their fences are like 30 feet high. Um, like Silver Lake. Silver Lake, right. Yeah. The Silver Lake mansion. The dimensions are 30 feet high. What are they for? Because they don't want the coyotes jumping over and eating their pets. They can jump 30 feet? No, that's why the wall's 30 feet. No, but but if like they had a regular fence, oh yeah, feet. no problem. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Now, I made up the number. I don't know the height, but no, the height, they're ridiculous. They're high. Yeah. They're high. Mm-hmm. So the first thing a fence does to protect is it keeps what out? Danger, danger. Danger out. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, is that the only thing a fence does? Keeps something's protected within. Oh, it's- very good. Keeps something in. Mm-hmm. Doesn't just keep things out. It keeps things in. That's what a fence is. If you're living in a bad neighborhood, well, you want to keep things out. But if you're living in Malibu on the bluffs and you've got a toddler, you want to keep in. <laughs> you don't want that toddler getting too close. Oh, look, ocean. <laughs> yeah, 100 feet down is ocean. <laughs> so a fence does two things. It keeps what in and what out? Something precious and it's danger out. There you go. Okay, now let's think about what the Ran of the Great Assembly said. What is Torah? Something precious. Mm-hmm. There you go. 
In the context of what we've been discussing, first and foremost, Torah is not laws in Judaism. We said that in the beginning of this class. So don't ever confuse what the rabbis are doing specifically, milk and meat and things like that, to just, well, let's make a fence around the Torah because we want to make sure that nobody messes up. No. Torah is something much more profound. Torah is something precious in the context of what the men of the Great Assembly are talking about. Well, what are we discussing? The first thing they said was, in life you're going to be making choices. Mm -hmm. Make sure every choice you make is deliberate. Number two, make sure you know how to make those choices. That's number two. Be independent. No, how do I know I'm right? Make choices. Number two, how do I know how to make choices? And you'll see that seems out of order, but we can discuss if we have time why it's out of order. It should be how to make choices, then make choices. No, first make choices. Number two is now make sure you know how to make choices. And then number three is what? Make a fence. Mm -hmm. It's almost Torah's to me, like how you just described it, is like Torah is like freedom. Mm. Like that. And now you're going to put a fence around that? It seems the opposite. It seems like, seems like you should be out protesting somewhere. <laughs> Take away our freedom. Well, ladies, or whoever's listening, when's the last time you did the following? You heard a class and the rabbi said something profound or the woman who was speaking said something profound about how you should change your life or you saw a movie and you're like, oh yeah, wow, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something about that. And you said, I'm going to do X. Mm-hmm. You made a choice. And then five minutes later, Alavai, five minutes later, where'd that choice go? What happened? You left the gate open. You left the window open. You forgot to put up a fence. The men of the Great Assembly say, make a fence around Torah. In the context of what we're speaking about, what are we talking about? You make choices in life. Mm -hmm. Well, you better protect those choices. Put a fence around them. And sometimes what's the fence you need? Well, sometimes the fence is what? Keep something in. Mm -hmm. You made a choice. Live with it. Do something about it. Mm -hmm. Keep it in. Don't let it just fly out the window. And then there's something else, though. Sometimes you make a choice, and you know what you have to do? You got to keep bad out. You made a choice. You decided that this was good. You decided that this was something you wanted to embrace. And then what happened? Someone, says you made a Someone comes along and ruins it for you. Mm-hmm. Don't let bad in. You made a choice. Live with it. And guess what? And I know this is, we don't have time to really delve into this, like, but sometimes, you know what it means? Sometimes it means allowing certain individuals to not be a part of your choices. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it means that, okay, you know what? If I'm choosing that this is how I really want to live my life, well, these are bad influences. And sometimes it means putting a fence up. I want to wrap up just because of time. The men of the Great Assembly said three things. Number one, you're going to make choices in life. Make those choices. Realize that that's what life is. Life is nothing other than a series of choices that we make. And therefore, be deliberate. Make them. Number two, make sure you know how to make those choices. 
get to a point where you are independent. How do I make choices? And the reason it's out of order is because first and foremost, you have to know that life is serious. You can't just be told, oh, you know, you got to know how to make choices. That's nice. No, life's serious. Life is choice. And now that you know that, now you'll understand, oh, I better know how to make them. And then number three, protect them. Don't lose them. The men of the great assembly compiled Judaism at a time when they knew we were going into exile. Mm -hmm. We're not going to be living in Eretz Israel. We're not going to be surrounded by a community. We're not going to be surrounded by a reality of existence where Hashem is so clear and so known and so profound in just its tangibility. We're going into a world where there's going to be influences that are totally against everything we stand for. How are we going to hold on to that? Well, how are you going to hold on to anything? Simple. Understand that life's about choices, no matter where you are. And if you know how to make those choices, and you know how to hold on to those choices, then you know what you can do? You can live life with meaning no matter where you are. That's what the men of the Great Assembly told us. All right, we'll pick up next week with Mishnah 2. Thank you. Thank you so much. I don't know how to turn this off. <laughs>